0: like the weir of a warrior. That's it. I'll take you on right now. Very well. But you see, I have the weir of the warrior. Therefore the battle is already over. The winner? Me! (laughs) Ha ha! Rematch! You lose again! Had enough? I thought so! everyone, welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Sight Podcast Network with myself, your host Silas Martin, and uh, unfortunately flying solo today. My normal co-host Christian is away and unavailable to record. I've also been incredibly busy this week, but this card was too damn significant not to talk about. Too many things happened that needed touching on. So it's just me for today and man, what an event this was. It was a night of absolutely insane action, and uh, some incredibly meaningful results, and an emotionally charged event with a lot of twists and turns. And in a way that, um, although obviously this podcast is ostensibly an analysis podcast, even though um, it's mostly just me and Christian trying to uh, make the funniest meme picks that might actually happen. Still, sometimes when I see a card like this, trying to break these some of these fights down to uh, the kind of tactical minutiae of things that are happening in the fight seems uh, weirdly shallow and reductive because some of these fights, I don't know, made me feel things. Um... One of them being the main event, uh, Glover Tashira versus Jiri Prohouska. Um, This was a fight where pretty much everyone laid out all of the reasons why Glover was uh, on paper a very difficult stylistic matchup for Jiri Prohouska and then in the end just picked the uh, young violence guy to uh, wipe out the crafty old vet, particularly yeah. with how Glover's run up to the title had been looking even in his wins you've been taking so much damage and you have to just assume that there's a point where that doesn't work anymore. But this was one of the most insane fights I've ever seen. Perhaps recent CZ bias that a lot of people are saying the greatest fight in UFC light heavyweight history, but I can't think of one that's better. Uh, This fight was way better than like Jones-Gus-1. It was on paper a grappler versus striker matchup in which the grappler nearly finished the striker on the feet on multiple occasions and um the striker was able to finish the grappler with a submission in in the last minute which I don't think anybody saw coming there was so many moments where it looked like either guy was going to be finished you know where Jerry Prohauska was just teeing off on Glover but Glover would somehow still stay standing and would just get Jiri on one leg off of a flying knee, run the pipe on a single leg. And the amount of times that Glover got full mount in this fight and Jiri was somehow able to scramble free and get back to work was just absurd. Like both guys were just on the brink of absolute annihilation at almost every moment of this fight. And the fact that it went as late as it did was just absurd, particularly down the stretch as, uh, Jiri's defense started really falling apart because, I mean, there is a a tremendous amount of, like, Tony Ferguson to Jiri's game. There's a ton of just absolute mechanical jank that's just backed up by just kind of really fantastic tactical decision-making as well as just uh, leveraging some insane physical attributes. But um, when he started to get really tired in that fifth round and he couldn't just... Kind of rely on his natural reactions to to roll with shots to mitigate damage. He was getting fucking lit up, and um a lot of people have criticized Glover Teixeira for some of the decision making that he made late in this fight. I am getting strong Korean zombie versus Yair Rodriguez vibes, where people are saying, "Well, why didn't you just hold on to the position? You 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 were up, like why did you jump guillotine?" And it's like, well. For a start, the man had nearly been knocked out several times over the course of this bout. And in a fight like that, yeah, he was up on the scorecards uh by a pretty wide margin on the on all three judges' scorecards. But there was no way he could know that in this in this fight. It had been absolutely insane. Both guys had nearly been finished multiple times. In those situations, you can't be thinking, I oh, just just need to eke this one out, get to the belt. Both guys were doing whatever. They could to finish the fight at all times, because that was what was necessary in this fight, and ha- had it not worked, uh, people would be calling Jerry Prahowska a fucking idiot for jumping on a no hooks rear naked choke on Glover to Shearer. In fact, people probably are calling him an idiot for uh I think it was in the third round he had Glover almost out of there when Glover initiated a scramble, and Jerry decided to jump a dash choke, which uh, kind of fumbled the finish for him. But in that fifth round, like it, it, it was just like... I don't even want to say who wanted it more because I don't know that I've ever seen a man who wanted to win a fight more than Glover Tashira wanted to win this fight. Um, this was just who, who had more left in the tank. Yeah, just the insatiable will to win on display on both sides in this fight was unlike anything I've ever seen. And um, I guess it begs the question where both guys go from here. Uh, Glover Tashira did not retire and uh this talk of jerry defending against Jan Blachowicz, um or maybe the winner of magomed akhaliev versus anthony smith um i don't don't see any reason not to just run this one back you know this is one of the greatest fights ever glover doesn't have many left i don't see any reason that he should have to fight back up the division when when it's kind of hard to make a real solid case for a number one contender at light heavyweight right now anyway. And uh, I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to see that fight run back. Uh, And then in the co-main event, Valentina Shevchenko defends her flyweight title again, just about. Uh, Tyler Santos became the first woman to take uh, a winning judge's scorecard against Valentina Shevchenko since uh, her split decision loss to Amanda Nunes before moving down to flyweight. Becoming a dominant champion there, and a good uh, bit of uproar from the MMA community, thinking that uh, Tyler Santos should have been the one to dethrone the Queen. Um, I can't help thinking that there might be a little bit of underdog bias there. Um, because it's just, uh, it's really compelling to see big upsets. It's it's you know it's one of the storylines that we all live for when we watch this sport, and so seeing someone who has barely dropped a round in her title reign have some real struggle you know you're watching it thinking oh my god is she going to fucking do it and there's definitely a case for tyler santos taking the first three rounds of this fight but you still you still kind of have to like want to score it for her a little bit just because yeah she had a lot of uh, she had a lot of really dominant positions a solid amount of control time and you know, uh, had the back had Body triangle secured, uh, was working on chokes, was cranking the neck at certain points. This is all, you know, this is all stuff that should be scoring, I think, even in a super purist, uh, only offense scores position doesn't matter kind of mindset. Um, But it was just the fact that she mostly was holding positions and working for submissions and. Pretty much all of the striking offense came from Valentina on the feet and even when she was in uh, disadvantageous positions. So um, it does seem like if you're going to prioritize offense, then Valentina winning is probably the correct result. And, you know, the later rounds just got really hard for Santos with her um, not being experienced uh, as a five-round fighter. And the fact that Val fucked her right eye up real good with a really slick headbutt on a clinch entry, I think, in the third round. Had some real nasty swelling on there. And uh, uh, strangely, Val wasn't going to the left high kick. Seems like exactly the kind of strike you want to go to against someone who's got a big swelling on their right eye. It's a move she's known for. But um, watching this fight, it really... Um makes me wonder if this is a massive overperformance from Tyler Santos that no one possibly could have expected, or if it just shows uh, all of the problems with how Valentina Shevchenko fights uh, because her ego, I think really was her undoing in this fight and nearly lost her her championship, purely because Tyler Santos uh, barely initiated the majority of the grappling exchanges in this fight. You know, she she kinda normally doesn't. She's normally just fighting someone like uh Roxanne Madaferi or Jillian Robertson, who has no choice but to grapple with her and, and she just wins the scrambles easily. Um against Joanne Calder, which she just, she just dropped her. And uh Shevchenko just could not let the head and arm throw go in this fight. Like every time they clinched up, she just do the same as fucking head and arm throw. And Tyler Santos would be like, oh, yeah, I'm strong, and I know how to scramble, so I'm just going to take you back from here. And, and it, it, took, it took three rounds of uh, constantly losing the same scramble for Shevchenko to be like, okay, I can't just dominate everywhere. I actually need to push stylistic advantages. There was, there was a moment where I, th- I think third, maybe fourth round you know, everyone was thinking that Val was clearly down on the scorecards, and Michael Bisping said, "Well, so is Valentina gonna, you know, aggressively go after her opponent now?" And he just said it in the most like condescending way ever, and it was really funny because it was like, "Well, no, not really." <laughs> so yeah, uh, Valentina is obviously uh, massively ducking having to fight Tyler Santos again. <laughs> She's been talking about potential rematches with jessica i or caitlin chukagian uh or going up to bantam weight to rematch juliana pena or amanda nunez depending on who wins that fight yeah i don't know see it seems like uh seems like it would take some reasonably small adjustments of brain thinking for valentina to win this fight a lot easier um but there's there's room for tyler santos to be more in it uh like I say, I don't, I don't I don't even know if this was necessarily Tyler Santos showing anything new, or or if it was just like, oh, yeah, Valentina Shevchenko actually can be overpowered and lose scrambles, and then just uh, spend good portions of a round on her back playing guard. This is a thing that's happened. But still, the uh, future's bright for Tyler Santos. Her stock obviously massively went up from this, and. And she's still young and has time to improve. Uh, Maybe she can rematch Val in like two years and hope that Val's shot and has no reactions and she can just knock her out. That'd be cool. And then uh, another fight that, as I mentioned earlier, feels weirdly shallow to even be approaching it from a technical perspective because it made me sad. Uh, Yueni and Jacek got knocked the fuck out by Li Zhang. Um, And as well as that, just... Absolutely smashed on the ground in a in the first round in a way that we have never seen in a Ioannis and Jacek fight in her entire career. Ioannis was able to scramble free towards the end of the first round, landed a huge counter right hand towards the end of the round that really uh, buzzed Zhang. Uh, it was a little too late in the round to capitalize on it, and as well, she uh, threw a kick that Zhang was able to get her down from to kind of get her shit together at the end of the round. It was kind of something that we touched on that if uh, Joanna was gonna kick against Zhang she had to do it in counters because it's very hard to lead with kicks against Zhang uh, because she's so good at uh, converting them into takedowns as you would expect from someone with a Sander background and yeah uh, uh, Joanna also did a good job of stuffing the takedowns in the second round I think it keyed into the fact that she that she was absolutely having um, um, most success when she was able to pressure in the first fight, and when she was able to find aggressive counters on the front foot. And she had also keyed into the fact that she was having a lot of success whenever she went southpaw against Zhang in the first fight, because um, it really just opened up the path for a left kick and the left straight, which are two strikes that uh, Zhang was just particularly defensively vulnerable to. But Zhang did a great job of using both of those things against Joanna in the finishing in the finish sequence. Where she caught Joanna coming in. I think Joanna was kind of trying to get inside Zhang's sidekick to uh, land a counter while Zhang was on one leg. Uh, But Zhang spun through with a spinning back fist. And because Joanna was in Southpaw, uh, her lead shoulder wasn't there to get behind. And she was just totally open to it and caught the entire forearm, like across the face and neck, Uh, put her down on her face. Um, But it, it was at least one where. Joanna was back to her feet and perfectly coherent uh, pretty quickly after the KO. I think it was much more one where she just um, lost her equi- equilibrium uh, while she was in a really bad position and fell forward onto her face. I mean, this was just a, a really impressive performance from Whaley Zhang where she showed that uh, she's absolutely still improving technically in all areas. And um, Joanna mostly looked like herself, just maybe... Uh, a little bit slower and a little bit easier to overpower she'd spent a long time out and it seemed like it it seemed like in a way in, in in her last couple of fights she's really kind of let go of that a psychotic competitive mindset and and just absolute insistence that she is, she is the absolute best she is the queen um but it was also i think that that kind of uh a kind of mentality that made her take some of her losses so hard. And um, it was just good to see, uh, see her in good spirits after this fight. Of course, uh, she retired, and uh, I think it was pretty much the perfect time for her. Yeah, she's on paper been on a little bit of a rough streak in her last few fights, but she went out fighting the best, and I don't think she went on too long to the point that it was getting sad. But also, uh, I think she can say that she left everything out there and she gave everything that she had to give to this sport. And not a lot of fighters get to say that. So uh, thank you, Joannie and Jacek, for an incredible career. I think she absolutely deserves to be a UFC Hall of Famer. She's one of the greatest female fighters of all time. And I hope she stays around. Uh, I, hope, I hope we get to see her on broadcast and stuff, particularly when uh, we get more cards in Europe again. Just, what a gal. And uh, Weili Zhang, I think we just basically all agree now is the strawweight champion. We can all just say that she beat Rose in the second fight and this was uh, her first title defense because she looked like a fucking beast and I think she's going to uh, eat Carla Sparza alive. Um, Jake Matthews looked like a new man. Me and Christian kind of counted him out in this matchup because uh, Andre Fialio has been looking like the coming man. And Jake Matthews just has never left a tremendous impression on me from the fights I had seen of him previously. But this was just didn't even look like the same dude. He had leveled up. And he patiently dismantled Andre Fialio off of the back foot and beautifully knocked him out in the second round. It was sick. He did a great job of just uh, taking away Fialio's weapons early, you know, kind of uh, interrupting his rhythm with low kicks, uh, going southpaw to shut down the jab, using the lead hand fight and uh, countering the jab with right hooks, which I don't know that Fiolio necessarily keyed into the stance dynamic there. So even when Jake Matthews was switching back to orthodox, uh, Fialio was just really tentative about his jab. Matthews was. Throwing left high kicks to the right hand. And as the fight got deeper, he just did a fantastic job of setting rhythms and breaking them, forcing Andre Fialio to set his feet and throw when he he had had his normal initiating weapons kind of taken away from him and started second-guessing his shot selection. Matthew started to land beautiful cross counters to the jab, following up with left hooks. And uh, Fialio was just kind of stepping into the pocket and not knowing what to do. At a certain point, Jake Matthews couldn't miss. Hunted him down with some beautiful short selection and knocked him out against the cage. Fantastic performance from Jake Matthews. I'm I'm really excited to see him moving forward now. And after this fight, I'd I'd love to see him matched up with someone like Michelle Pereira or maybe even like Stephen Thompson. And uh, Andre Fiolio should probably take some time off. Been staying super active, and a lot of those fights he was winning reasonably easy, or not taking tons of damage. But there's only a certain point to which you can keep that up and keep winning these fights consistently. And Jake Matthews obviously took some time to work on some stuff. Uh, Jack Della Maddalena uh, knocked out Ramzanamiv. That was cool. Had uh, some adversity along the way, and I guess still showed some growth for a guy who got. Arm triangle subs in his first two professional fights and uh, hasn't lost a fight since then. And, you know, while, while Ram's enemy probably not going anywhere in the UFC, I think Jack Dell definitely could have found a way to lose this fight if he hadn't been making improvements the whole time and it was a beautiful finish with a, with a body shot. Love to see it. And uh, yeah, he remains one of the most promising prospects at welterweight right now i uh, get him in a fight with Daniel Rodriguez right now. Sounds like an absolute banger. Make it five rounds. Uh, then headlining the prelims, uh, Sungwoo Choi and Joshua Kulabao had an absolute fucking banger. Uh, Kulabao is just crazy tough and scrappy, and Sungwoo Choi is fucking huge and has, has an insane chin. Uh, that's basically it. Not sure how much there is to really say about the fight analytically, but it was a banger, and you should definitely watch, watch it if you missed it. Tons of knockdowns and crazy exchanges, and Choi managing to stay in the fight, and throw back a lot of hard offense, even when it looked like he was out on his feet multiple times. Uh Maheshete knocked Steve Garcia the fuck out, because uh, Steve Garcia always eats shit at the beginning of the first round, and this time he didn't recover. Uh, Always cool to see an orthodox fighter who's really aware of open stance tactics because a lot of the time people think of those things as just southpaw tactics, whereas in fact they are available to either fighter in the open stance. It's just generally that the southpaw is more well-versed in uh, navigating that kind of stance matchup. But uh, Machete couldn't fucking miss with the uh, open side right-hand counter. Uh, Brendan Allen uh, kind of fucking robbed Jacob Malkoon. I feel like Brendan Allen has maybe had a pretty classic MMA skill regression where he came in and he was like the grappling guy. And it seems like he's probably gone, well, I'm the grappling guy. Now I can just get good at striking. And he's probably not been working that hard on his grappling. And uh, he still doesn't have good defense as a striker, particularly when it comes to jabs. Um, But it was still probably uh, his grappling and his ability to win scrambles and uh, get sweeps and end up on top that won him this fight because it was kind of a bunch of pretty even grappling exchanges. But uh, when it was on the feet, Brendan Allen was actually kind of just getting jabbed the fuck up. I'm sorry, Jacob Malkoon. I should have known better than to pick a man who got jabbed up and knocked out by Sean Strickland over a man who has spent time around Robert Whitaker, but not really. Jacob Malcun's um, he's he's uh, actually kind of good. Um, he's the kind of guy who's not gonna like blow the doors down when he comes into the UFC, but he is a solid, well-rounded, like strategically aware and tough, scrappy fighter. Kind of the new Bilal Muhammad. Last fight, I'm gonna bother actually talking about uh, Silvana Gomez Suarez. Uh, knocked out Lang Na and became my new favorite uh, women's strawweight Uh, because it's uh, just funny to see a 115-pound woman who fights like she's Josh Emmett. (laughs) But with way worse defensive grappling than Josh Emmett. Uh, Yeah, she's just looking to throw huge heat every time. It's it's funny. Um, If you guys don't remember in her last fight, she fought Vanessa Demopoulos. Dropped her with a huge right hand and then got Armbard going for the finish. And this one, she got the KO. Uh, clapped Langna with a huge overhand right cross counter to the jab. Then uh, Langna uh, just was not staying defensively responsible, getting to her feet and ate a few hooks on the way up. And that was it. Uh, let's go, Silvana Gomez-Juarez. I hope you win every one of your fights by knockout and lose every one of your fights by submission. Okay, and so this weekend we have an actually pretty goddamn good UFC Fight Night card, which ordinarily we would like to have dedicated an entire episode to, but uh, just due to the situation this week, I'm just going to be covering it uh, quickly on the end of this episode. And most notably, a Featherweight Top Contenders main event, a Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett. Tantalizing striking matchup between... Uh, Two guys, neither of which really enforce a particularly strong directionality. Uh, Josh Emmett really is kind of the uh, uh, Michael Chandler, Dan Henderson, like, power wrestle boxer style. All about the body jab, big overhand right, and follow up with the left hook. Will kick willingly, but it's not really his bread and butter, and mostly just kind of fannies around on the outside looking to land his huge bombs, uh, can kind of get frustrated when uh, people can kind of just stick him with long-range shots and keep their feet moving um, because his footwork is not really like mechanically designed to move forward. It's mostly to put him in good positions to land his big shots, which it is good at doing that. We kind of saw against Jeremy Stevens, he can be uh, made a little bit uncomfortable on the back foot, even against someone as plodding as Jeremy Stevens. I mean, I think we saw a lot of improvements in that in the Shane Burgos fight where he was really able to uh, stand his ground and find intercepting counters against someone who just wanted to move forward on him. But as I said, Kevin Cater is another fighter who really just uh, mostly favors these kind of open, neutral space exchanges. Mainly because he just, like, everything has to build off of his jab and he's kind of foot slow. And the matchups where he's had the most trouble are like really mobile kickers who can take his jab away and keep their feet moving. Or, like, Max Holloway just pressured the absolute shit out of him. He was just constantly a step behind. Um, I don't really think Josh Emmett's going to do any of those things. And uh, much like... And um, when we had Sriram on to talk about Rob Font, who is in most ways a not as good version of Calvin Cater, a big thing about me picking whoever Calvin Cater is, can you proactive, can you proactively take away his jab early? I don't really think Josh Emmett's going to do that. I think Josh Emmett's going to give Calvin Cater time and space. And and he's he's going to wait on Calvin Cater to find his counter opportunities. And um, I just don't think, conceding initiative to Calvin Kayer is a particularly good idea in that way. You know, if you let him establish his jab and really start leading the dance, setting a rhythm with his jab and then disrupting it with his big counter shots, you know, his right hand and uppercut and elbow. He's got a great left hook. I just think if Josh Emmett's not willing to to really set a pace early, which we haven't seen before, or like I said, really uh, proactively take away Calvin Cater's jab, I think he's just going to end up being a step behind. Um, of course, Josh Emmett has been a step behind um, and just won suddenly. Like he he was absolutely down against Michael Johnson, who, uh, as I said, kind of just uh, uh, stuck him with jabs and ran away. Um, and then he died instantly. I um, also have a hard time seeing that happening to Calvin Cater because he's just... One of the most freakishly unkillable people I've ever seen. Josh Emmett, of course, is also a absolutely freakish puncher, but that that also makes him kind of like not a great finisher, because I think he's so used to people just dying when he lands that clean shot. You know, he dropped Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy Stevens got back into the fight. You know, he wasn't able to finish Shane Burgos. He was able to stay on top of the the round and win it very clearly. But I just don't think he has the shot selection to really hunt someone down when he's hurt them but hasn't finished them um and then there's the fact that uh josh emmett is constantly getting clipped by left hooks on exits because he commits to his right hand so hard and he's constantly getting like a michael chandler versus charles Oliveira, where where he's just like hopping backwards uh out of range with his right hand down and just gets clipped by a left hook that's how he uh got knocked out by jeremy stevens gotten badly hurt in the third round against Dan Ige, and uh, that's just like a pretty Calvin Cater thing to do. So yeah, I'm going to pick Calvin Cater by third round knockout. And I'm kind of just going to give some brief thoughts and a pick. There's some cool stuff on here. Nothing that I'm really going to like sit down and watch tape for and really get into. Donald Cerrone versus Joe Lozon has been rebooked for the co-main event, kind of as we said before. Lozon always could have had some success early against Donald Cerrone because he starts super hot, uh, but will fade if he can't get the finish. I think Donald Cerrone went anywhere near his prime. I could probably could have relied on him to uh, recover from that early barrage from Joe Lozon and just pick him apart with kicks from the second round on, probably knock him out, but uh, Donald Cerrone is uh, shot as fuck and so probably is Joe Lozon, but he hasn't fought for a while and got a first-round finish in his last fight. Uh, Kevin Holland's fighting Tim Means. Uh, Kevin Holland's probably going to knock out Tim Means because he's kind of old. But, I mean, you know, I, I love Tim Means. He's a super crafty technician. He's a great clinch striker in a way that you just don't see enough of in MMA. Um. He's just probably not going to try to out-wrestle Kevin Holland, which is basically the easy way to beat him. And uh, I think Kevin Holland just has enough physicality, uh, uh, well-to-weight, and particularly length, that uh, the clinch is not going to be the kind of safety zone that it normally is for Tim Means. Wacky Buckley's fighting Albert Duraev. I don't know what's going on with Wacky Buckley. Demiris Magulov fighting Guram say, that's a cool fight. Demir's probably going to win. Oh, Julian Marquez versus Gregory Rodriguez, a middleweight banger for the ages. Adrian Yanez versus Tony Kelly. The Randy Costa destroyers face off. Uh, I'm going to pick Adrian Yanez by knockout because that's what he does and it would be cool. And then maybe Tony Kelly will say some weird racist shit after the fight. Jeremiah Wells is fighting Court McGee. Court McGee really might win. Cody Stamen's fighting Eddie Wineland. Could this be Cody Stamen's first KO win since since Bill Camry in 2017? Probably Eddie Wineland's old as fuck. Um, But he's janky and uh, strong. So uh, might give Cody Stamen some trouble. Then we got some more middleweight fights. Overall pretty solid fight night card. Looks like a lot of fun should be interesting to recap you can catch us next week where we'll be we'll be recapping all the action from that card as well as previewing next week's equally tantalizing lightweight main event between uh, Arman Sayuki and Mateusz Gamrot and uh if you enjoyed this content and all the other great stuff that the fight site puts out then please consider supporting us on Patreon A pledge of just three dollars gains access to a huge library of really high quality analytical fight content. And then a the pledge of $5 gains access to a Discord server where we have a great community of interesting fight fans from a variety of different backgrounds where we're always having interesting discussions. You can talk to staff. Uh, Christian and myself are very active in the Discord. We regularly host a fight night watch parties where we all get together in the voice chats, watch some fights. It's always a good time. You should come hang out, support the fight site. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast. and We'll catch you guys later. Peace.